It's Valentine's Day, and we have a love letter for Sony. It's our Sony Xperia 5 Mark II podcast review, and we're taking a look at Sony's latest flagship non-pro phone that packs a punch for the modern photographer. So let's take a look. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Hello and welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're taking a look at Sony's latest flagship phone that normals should buy. Yeah, we're not counting the Xperia Pro. We're talking about the Xperia 5 Mark II, and this time out of the gate, Sony has an emphasis on gaming as well, so we're going to give that a long look in our podcast review. But first, we have to get to the news of the week. Let's start off the news this week with a now infamous story of a Texas lawyer who fell victim to a Zoom filter. I'm Not a Cat has echoed across social media for a week now, but just in case you haven't heard about it, it's linked in the show notes and you should definitely check it out. I won't spend a lot of time on this because you've probably already heard about it or seen it. Zoom court hearings have become something of a norm this past year, so I think the only surprising thing is that it took this long for it to happen. Texas attorney Rod Ponton appeared in the Zoom meeting as a filter-generated cat instead of himself and just... Whoops. There's about 30 seconds of the meeting where the cat on screen struggles to remove the filter, and the part that gets me is the note on the screen which says, quote, recording this hearing or live stream is prohibited, and yet... Someone recorded it, and it's gone viral. I wonder if we'll ever get to find out who recorded it and if they'll ever get penalized. I sure hope not, because it's hilarious and it deserves to be shared. Once again, link in the show notes. We're going to file this one under just because you can doesn't mean you should. A company called Expanscape developed a laptop that carries seven screens. That's right. You heard me correctly. Seven screens. There's your main panel and two larger panels that swing out from behind it. Then each of those panels has a second panel that extends up from the first panel. And just for kicks, there's an LCD screen embedded in the body below the keyboard to the right of the trackpad. So that's seven screens altogether and just woof. The laptop is powered by two internal batteries, one 82-watt-hour battery for the system and a second 148-watt-hour battery just for the screens. But if you ramp up this laptop with all the screens, overclocking the processor, and all that jazz like, you know, you can do with seven screens, you're going to get about 28 minutes of battery life. And suddenly... I don't feel so bad about my MSI computer. As you can imagine, this thing is not svelte, resembling one of those ruggedized tablets that you see in construction yards or Stargate Atlantis, but this thing looks like it's about two and a half to three and a half inches thick when all folded up with Velcro straps holding everything in place. It's not going to win any beauty awards, that's for sure. But you can actually buy this thing, though the price isn't listed anywhere. You need to email them because that transaction always goes well. I would suggest you don't just because... Holy crap, dude. This thing is insane. A new leak suggests that OnePlus will be working with Hasselblad to up its camera game in 2021. So the good news is OnePlus actually wants to up its camera game, finally. 
The bad news is they're working with Hasselblad. Or at least we think so. This is just a leak after all. Hasselblad, by all reports, is a great camera company, but the few times that they've worked with phone makers... It hasn't gone well. Most notably, the camera Moto Mod you could get for the Moto Z phones. <laughs> you remember those? I miss Moto Mods. I really do. Anyway, the Hasselblad mod costs over $200, and by all reports, it worked decently, but nothing approaching, you know, good. Now Hasselblad is going to work its magic inside a camera bump, and I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just saying that history isn't on their side. But again, I'd like to emphasize here that OnePlus is actively trying to improve its cameras, and the first step to solving any problem is to admit you have one. So I, for one, am looking forward to seeing what Hasselblad and OnePlus can do together, and I've also just recently learned in the last 20 seconds that I like saying Hasselblad. Hey, <laughs> Hasselblad, Hasselblad. It sounds like a Knight Rider vampire spin-off series. I love it. It only took a year for Apple to figure out how to let people unlock their iPhones while wearing a mask, and as it turns out, they're using a method that Android's been using for many years, letting your watch do it. Apple released watchOS 7.4 public beta with the iPhone unlocking feature on board, which on the plus side means you can keep your mask on, but on the downside, you need an Apple watch, and that's surprising to absolutely no one. Unfortunately, like with Android, the watch can't be used to purchase apps in the App Store or use Apple Pay, and I guess that kind of makes sense. But honestly, if you're unlocking the front door of your house, shouldn't you just go ahead and leave the safe open too, you know? Otherwise, you're just going to come home and find a broken safe. But anyway, it's nice that Apple users are getting this option because I can tell you from standing and waiting in line, having to use your passcode all the time, not fun. If only there was, I don't know, some kind of biometric authentication that someone could use other than their face, like, I don't know, fingerprint or something. I know, it's it's crazy talk. It's, it's definitely crazy talk and probably best left for the commoners. According to the Korea Herald, and this is translated from Korean, so bear with me, but LG is selling off its inventory of velvets and wings at substantial discounts. It seems to be a fire sale in Korea. The LG wing is going for around $357, and the LG Velvet is being literally given away through carriers in Korea. And this probably amounts to very bad news among those who may have been hoping for an LG comeback. Of course, maybe they're just clearing warehouse space for the V70? Yeah, probably not. I'm just going to reiterate here that both the LG Velvet and LG Wing were both really good phones. In fact, the LG Wing is back in my hands after spending the holidays with co-producer Cliff. And I'll be putting the Wing back to work, shooting videos for the YouTube channel, hashtag please subscribe. I really wish we didn't have to speculate about the end of LG phones, but it looks like it may be upon us. Stay tuned for more information as it becomes available. The folks over at CompareMyMobile.com ran a poll of 2,000 smartphone users, and they wanted to find out what were the most annoying things a relationship partner could do, and whether iPhone users or Android users did them more. As it turns out, Android users are easier partners to have because of the bad habits of the survey listed, which include using the phone during a TV show or a movie, or using your phone during quality time together, or using your phone while eating or drinking at the dinner table, or using your phone during sex. I'm just kidding, that wasn't on the survey, but seriously, honey, do you really have to? 
Anyway, by and large, iPhone users committed those sins more often than Android users, and by as much as 22% more likely. Now, say you want to know about what this means. Are Android users better people than iPhone users? Yes. I mean, no. I mean, yes. I mean, no. I'm just kidding. I think it may point to how ingrained a smartphone is into someone's life. For example, if someone just wants a phone and doesn't really want to do much with it, they tend to get Androids because they're cheaper or free and they're easier to replace. So that's one thing. It should also be mentioned that last year's Compare My Mobile ran a poll about the likelihood of getting dates using Android and iOS, and in that poll, iPhone users were also more likely to get dates and less likely to be looked down on because of their smartphone choice. And again, I think that's a broad generalization, but the fact that green bubbles are less than blue bubbles is definitely a thing. What does it all mean? Arguably, I think it means we all use our phones too much, so damn it, just go cuddle and leave your phone on the charger. When the Surface Duo came out, it was widely panned by reviewers and mostly because of the buggy software that shipped with it. Microsoft has spent the last three months or so pushing out updates designed to fix the many, many, many problems, and today, the Surface Duo actually kind of runs half not bad by most accounts. This week, though, the Surface Duo saw a $400 price drop to a measly $999, which is honestly where it should have started in the first place. Yes, the device is a new take on mobile, but honestly, it's not that new, and it has a garbage camera and no NFC and bad software. So yeah, even now, $1,000 seems a little bit out of reach, and it should be. The Surface Duo is a new idea, and the hardware is drop-dead gorgeous. Nobody's going to argue that point. But it's very much a first-gen product, and even at $1,000, you should pause a long time before deciding to buy one. In fact, honestly, you shouldn't buy one. Sorry, not sorry, but at least if you do buy one, it'll be $400 cheaper. That makes it at least a little bit easier to swallow. A few weeks ago, we talked about the asteroid Apophis and how it might swing by in about 40 years or so and end all life on Earth as we know it. Well, this year Apophis is making a flyby within around 10 million miles of the planet. Now that might not seem close, but in astrological terms, that's really just a couple houses over from our house. Anyway, March 5th this year will be a good time for scientists to take a look at the asteroid before it spins away for a while. The Virtual Telescope Project will be hosting a live stream of the asteroid's flyby on March 5th, which is just a couple weeks away. I'm not sure what we're going to see on that day, but I'm going to be watching because it could be interesting. It won't be nearly as interesting as April 13th, 2029, when Apophis passes the Earth close enough to be seen with the naked eye. There's no risk of a collision on that date, and the 2068 risk is getting smaller and smaller as more analysis comes in, so there's probably no need to panic, but if you want to see the asteroid before it heads back out to deep space, and more importantly, before it comes back and kills us all, set a reminder on your phone to hit the link in the show notes on March 5th at 6 p.m. Central Time. Facebook, the crappy company run by terrible people, is secretly building a smartwatch that it's planning to sell next year. And the main reason why I bring that up is, well, it's been a long time since I've had the opportunity to crap on Facebook, so here we are. And the funny thing here is The Verge's article starts off with, quote, Facebook is building a smartwatch as part of its ongoing hardware efforts, to which I said, Facebook? Ongoing hardware efforts? The article goes on to point out that Facebook owns Oculus, which I'd kind of forgotten about, and that Facebook has the Portal, which 
Total honesty, literally never shows up on my radar. The smartwatch will have fitness and messaging features because Facebook knows everything about you except when you sleep and how healthy you are, and Facebook just cannot have that. And as attractive as that data would be, who's going to buy a smartwatch from Facebook? Then again, I ask myself every day who would buy a smart screen from Facebook, and the obvious answer is people who work for Facebook, and yes, I know there's like 200,000 of them, but you need a much bigger market than that, don't you? Anyway, the Facebook Watch is coming, and no, I won't be buying it or reviewing it. Again, sorry, not sorry. One of the most iconic videos ever shot on the moon has to be of Alan Shepard golfing on the moon. The astronaut brought a modified six iron and two golf balls aboard Apollo 14, and as the last act before they wrapped things up on the moon, Shepard took his two shots. One shot was an unimpressive shank, but the other one got some good flight, and until now, we didn't really know how good a flight. But imaging specialist Andy Saunders has been working on some archival images of the moon from that 1971 spaceflight, and he's uncovered the final landing spots of both golf balls. It turns out Shepard's ball flew about 40 yards over a span of about 30 seconds before settling back onto the surface of the moon. Of course, 40 yards doesn't sound all that impressive until you consider this quote from Saunders to the BBC. Quote, the moon is effectively one giant, unraked, rock-strewn bunker. The pressurized suits severely restricted movement, and due to their helmet's visors, they struggled to even see their feet. I would challenge any club golfer to go to their local course and try to hit a six-iron, one-handed, with a one-quarter swing out of an unraked bunker. And then imagine being fully suited, helmeted, and wearing thick gloves. Remember also, there was little gravity to pull the club head down towards the ball. The fact that Shepard even made contact and got the ball airborne is extremely impressive. And it is very impressive indeed, Mr. Shepard. I, for one, salute you. And to Andy Saunders, I salute you as well for finding the ultimate lost golf ball. And finally, researchers at Colorado State University have developed an AI system that can tell when your good doggo is sitting or standing or lying down and will even reward your dog for obeying a command. Just bring your dog into the camera's field of view, issue a command, and if the dog obeys, because of course he will because he's such a good boy. He's a good puppy. He's a good... <clears throat> Sorry. But if your dog obeys, the AI will release a treat. Now, ultimately, how useful will this be? Will you use AI to train your dog so you can be even lazier with your pets than you already are? That's a long way away from a proof of concept, but researchers are working on it for some damn reason, and now it remains a curiosity, and you know, podcast news fodder, which, hey, I definitely respect. This review of the Sony Xperia 5 Mark II has been a long time coming. Well, actually, it's been a long time procrastinated because... That's how I do on the Benefit of a Doubt podcast, but there's a specific reason I'll get to on the podcast about why I've been procrastinating this review, but I simply can't put it off anymore because, frankly, my review period is up and I need to send the phone home, or at least off to the next reviewer, whatever the case may be. So since I can't put it off any longer, this is my official review of the Sony Xperia 5 Mark II. So let's talk about this Sony Xperia 5 Mark II, and while we do, let's remember that you like me, and that's why you're here, right? 
right? So, um, yeah. So here's the thing. Sony has released three phones in the Xperia line that have been touted as a photographer's dream. Not only are these cameras fine-tuned to Sony's Alpha Team specifications, but the Pro Camera app is actually a separate app you launch independently of the camera app. Actually, it's two apps, one for photos and one for video, but anyway. But at the end of 2020, Sony pivoted away from being a camera superphone to being a phone for everyone. Sure, the apps and super camera controls are still there, but Sony added a bigger battery, a 120Hz screen, and a partnership with Call of Duty at launch to get a bunch of Call of Duty points or whatever they're called if you bought the phone. In short, Sony touted this as a gaming phone as much as it was a camera phone. So then the question is, did it live up to the hype? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Starting off with the hardware, you've got Sony's typical 21 by 9 Hershey bar aspect ratio, which is very tall, very narrow. It's so tall and narrow that it actually threw off my on-screen controls in Call of Duty Mobile, and I lost quite a bit because of it, and I was I'm not mad, but, you know, it was kind of irritating. But the benefit to this is the ability to reach across the screen one-handed, and it's just, in general, more comfortable phone to hold. Along the side, you have a volume rocker at the top, which is a bit too small if you ask me. That's followed by the power button slash side-mounted fingerprint sensor, which, side note about the fingerprint sensor, pun intended, I love side-mounted fingerprint sensors. They just make so much sense. Yes, they're a pain to trigger when your phone is on a table, but I still love them. Don't at me. Below that, you have a dedicated Google Assistant button, and below that still is a dedicated camera shutter button because, as I mentioned, this is a super camera phone. On the bottom, you have a USB Type-C port, and on top, there is a bona fide headphone jack on a phone that costs more than $500. That's right, Virginia. Miracles do happen. On the left side of the phone is a SIM tray that is removable with just a fingernail, and I'm not sure how I feel about that, honestly. The screen is a 6.1 Full HD Plus display with the aforementioned 120Hz refresh rate, which you care about, but I sure as hell don't. My review unit had 128GB of storage along with 8GB of RAM. There's a 4000mAh battery and of course the Snapdragon 865 processor. On the back is a triple camera setup, which we'll talk about in more detail later. For now, suffice it to say that there's three 12 megapixel sensors, a main sensor, an ultra wide, and a telephoto 3x optical zoom lens. They're all Carl Zeiss optics, by the way, and again, more on the camera performance later. Overall, this is a nice phone package in the black finish that I got. The back is glass and slippery as hell, but it's not a fingerprint magnet, which I thought was something of a surprise. This phone does not support 5G in the US, and what's up with that? But otherwise, that almost finishes out the hardware. The other part of this phone kind of falls somewhere between hardware and software, so we're going to put it in the transition between the two. Sony added a dynamic vibration for sound, which uses the haptic engine to add a little rumble to your phone to emphasize the bass. You know, if the phone's rocking, don't come a-knockin'. Anyway, it's fine. I, I don't really miss it when I use other phones, and I kind of forget it's there until suddenly my phone is vibrating, and it's like, hey, this is kind of fun. You hold the phone, I'll hit redial. Meanwhile, it's kind of neat because it gives you the impression that the bass is much boomier than it actually is. So I think, like, psychosomatically, I'm thinking the sound is great, when objectively, it probably isn't. It's neat, but not in a party trick kind of way, more in, like, an everyday use kind of way. It's not terribly useful, but it's kind of, huh, you know? 
it's honestly kind of hard to quantify its value. So, as is becoming a tradition in my podcast reviews, this feature gets the esteemed podcast shrug. The software is quite good. Sony has gone with an almost stock Android experience. It's Android 10 with a promised update to Android 11, which would be great if we weren't already seeing leaks for Android 12. I'm not going to harp, though. If you pick up a Pixel phone or this Sony phone, it's honestly going to be hard to tell the difference between them. Speaking of which, I officially sent out my Pixel 4a for my Samsung trade-in yesterday, and yeah, it kind of hurt. But I can take some comfort in this phone since it's very similar, but then again, I have to send this phone back next week, so just what the hell? I guess it's Samsung or bust from here on out. Yeehaw! And if you're wondering who I'm hitching my train to, it's the SS Samsung, baby. Yes, I'm mixing my metaphors, and... Where was I? Oh, right, the software. The main software addition that Sony made to this phone, aside from the separate Pro Camera and Pro Cinema apps, was in its Game Enhancer, and this does a lot, so... Bear with me. In addition to giving you quick access to screenshots, multiple screenshots, screen recording, and more, it also enables you to set various focus settings like turning off the notification shade, turning off notifications in general, turning off basically everything except the game. There's even a competition mode that prevents you from exiting the game until you turn competition mode off. I've played with some game enhancers before, but this thing goes hardcore. I really only have one quibble with it. The Game Enhancer has two ways to enable it. There can be a floating button that you tap on, or a pull-down menu that you swipe down to get access to. The floating button option should never be an option. You're gaming, for crap's sakes. There should be no UI anywhere on the screen except for the game's UI. But beyond that quibble, I'm pretty happy with it. Another neat thing Sony has is this multi-window switch, when what that basically is is a shortcut to launch two apps at once in multi-window mode. Most recently, it's reminiscent of what the Wing did, allowing you to launch multiple apps onto two screens. On the Wing, it makes a touch more sense, but I like the ability to launch two apps at once here, too. You can configure your own apps, or it gives you suggestions. Funny enough, one of the suggestions it gave me didn't support multi-window mode, so... Go figure, I guess. There's clearly some more work to do here. As for the rest of the software, it will be Android 11, in theory, someday. But as of the sixth week of 2021, it was still Android 10, so take that for what you will. So let's go ahead and chat about those cameras, shall we? This is the Sony Xperia 5 Mark II, and as such, it carries with it a certain legacy, or at least it will carry with it a legacy once Sony establishes what it's trying to do in the camera game. You see, Sony is a great camera manufacturer, and it seeks to continue that legacy into the smartphone realm, finally. Up until now, the Alpha team and the Xperia team treated each other like idiot cousins that no one wanted to deal with. Now they're working together, and the result is, well, let's chat about that for a second. The Sony Xperia 5 Mark II ships with three camera sensors, all 12 megapixels. There's a 24mm wide lens, there's a 16mm ultra-wide lens with a 124-degree field of view, and a 70mm telephoto lens, which is the equivalent of a 3x optical zoom. Now, before we get into the photo analysis, I want to talk about the Pro Modes. Sony ships two different Pro apps along with this phone. There's Photo Pro Mode and Cinema Pro. And right off the bat, I'm going to tell you straight out, I did not do a lot of testing with these modes. And there's a very good reason for it. 
I'm not a photographer. I'm not a videographer. I'm just a guy who takes pictures and shoots and edits video. But most of the pro controls are beyond me. And I'm going to give you an example. I know what ISO is. I know what shutter speed is. I even know what white balance is. And that's fine. How do I use those three things to make a great photo or a video? I have no clue except maybe to shoot it in RAW and correct it later in Lightroom. Most of the time when I try to take a photo using a pro mode, it comes out as utter garbage. And I think it's fair to say that, okay, I'm going to use another metaphor here. I know what oregano tastes like and I know what paprika tastes like. I even know what garlic powder tastes like. But if you hand me a chicken breast and those three spices and ask me to cook a gourmet meal, well, let's just say you're in for a culinary adventure. In the hands of a pro photographer, this camera array would probably yield amazing results. In my hands, you've got a monkey with a typewriter. Sure, I might lock out and write Shakespeare, but honestly, I'm probably just going to throw my poop at you and eat the bugs in my hair. So if you put this camera into auto mode, now that I can do. So let's get to it. Most of the photos I took with this phone happened in downtown Chicago during a day trip, and that's because... This is one of the coldest winters that I can remember, and when you combine that with COVID, I just don't go anywhere. Like, even when I try to go somewhere, I go nowhere. So downtown it is, and the camera setup performs really well in daylight. The day we went downtown, the skies were overcast, which is bad for your mood, but good for your photography. The overcast sky diffuses the light beautifully, so everything can be captured in crisp detail. It's really magical, and if I had my way, every day would be overcast. But yeah, for the camera performance, the ultra-wide camera gets a very wide field of view with little to no fisheye effect going on there, and that's great. The software does a great job correcting for that. The main sensor and zoom lens are both just as sharp, and that's probably one of the most defining characteristics of all these lenses. Everything is very clear, and in focus where it should be. There's very little color changing between the lenses as well, meaning what something looks like in the ultra-wide lens is going to ex look exactly like that when zoomed in. What's really nice about that is consistency in colors, so you can take whatever shot you want without worrying about what the final product's going to look like. There's no over-sharpening or over-saturation that you'll find on other phones. <coughs> Samsung. <coughs> As for portraits, again, I didn't have many opportunities to take portraits, but the ones I took were fairly inconsistent. The focus was a major problem. Even if your subjects were perfectly still, sometimes it came out okay, but often it did not. I couldn't put my finger on why one photo was good and the other one was blurry. It's just so weird. And If you have willing subjects willing to sit through a few photos, then it's okay. If you have my kids, it's not. Portrait mode was kind of hidden away, being part of the main menu rather than an additional mode like normal. Once I found it, it worked pretty well. When you're taking selfies, portrait mode is a separate mode, so Sony, I don't know, maybe you need to spend less time on your pro mode and software and make more time for your normal human software? Just a thought. Because honestly, if all that sounded confusing, it kind of is, and it confused me for a while too. The thing is, there aren't a whole lot of other modes like at all. You've got portrait selfie, which irritates me because that's a mode, but not normal portrait. But we've already spent time on that, so we're going to move on. But you've also got slow motion, creative effect, and panorama, and that's it. Perhaps the argument is that Sony wants to focus more on serious photography and less gimmicks photography, and I get that. I'll be honest. 
I'm not one for camera modes anyway, so the lack doesn't particularly bother me except that a lot of other phones have modes like macro mode or food mode or hyperlapse, so their lack here is surprising, but not necessarily bad. Sony does use AI for some scene detection, which can automatically trigger night mode, for example, which is cool. It's not quite the same, though. Speaking of night mode, once again, this is an area where the camera severely underperforms. The main gripe I have on the low-light photography is the extreme lack of focus. Now, that can be tricky for low-light photography because it's kind of hard to see, so it can be hard to know what to focus on. Now, this is a particular area where pro mode will make a significant difference. In pro mode, you can adjust focus manually, even in low light. Once you pump up the aperture and the ISO and turn down the shutter speed, you can probably pull off some amazing photos. Just not in my hands because I suck. So where does that leave us with this camera? Well, in general, you've got three lenses that are all tuned to the exact same color and that's amazing because you can take whatever shot you want with any of the lenses. And that's a really great thing. However, when the lights go down, this phone struggles, but not like other phones struggle with like blown out highlights, although it does, not with pixelated blacks, although this phone does, but not as bad. But mainly, it's just a general haze or film over the camera lenses that just keeps everything out of focus, and it really sucks. I really wish that a great camera setup like the one on this phone could perform better in low light. It just doesn't. Maybe there's work for Sony to do here. In fact, there definitely is work for Sony to do here. The question is, is Sony going to focus on that, or is Sony going to rely on its pro mode to prop it up? On the performance end, this phone is a champ. On Geekbench, this phone scored a 907 single core and 3298 multi-core, and both of those outperform most other phones from last year, including anything by OnePlus or Samsung. Put into perspective, the Galaxy S21 Ultra runs at 1084 single core and 3218 multi-core, so this phone can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Samsung's latest and literal greatest from 2021. And when gaming, this phone just flies. There's zero lag, zero hiccups. It's just flat out baller. So I can see why Sony wanted to put an emphasis on gaming for this phone. It just flies through everything. It's just, I, I really can't say more about it because it's just really good and it never stutters, never lags. It's pretty amazing. In terms of battery life, this phone is also very good. I can't help but wonder if that's because of the 4G limitation, but on an average night, I hit the sack with over 20% left in the tank. It's really good. So overall, where does that leave us with this phone? Well, in the hands of a professional photographer, this phone has the potential to be amazing. In the hands of an idiot like me, unfortunately, it's just pretty good. While the camera setup is not as flashy as that on the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra, it is easily the most versatile camera setup that you can get in 2020. Unfortunately, it's 2021, and the Galaxy S21 Ultra and its insane 30x zoom still exists. And I know the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra goes up to 100x, but trust me, 30x is pretty much where it stops. Plus, this very week, Xiaomi released a phone with 120x zoom, which, let's be honest, at 120x, it's probably also going to be pretty terrible, but still, 
It exists. And unfortunately, especially in low light, you're only going to be able to fully utilize this amazing photography setup in pro mode. If this phone had a periscope lens with a 5 or 10x optical zoom, I could probably recommend this easily over the S21 Ultra. At 3x, it's still pretty good, and the manual controls make really great photos possible albeit with a very, very high learning curve. All the same, there's a lot to love about this phone. Sony says it's built for gamers first and photographers a very close second. But honestly, for everyone else, it's a close third. I would love to see this phone not hobbled by being limited to 4G, but that's really my only complaint. And if you know me and my position on 5G, you know that even that is a minor complaint. There's a lot to love here. But I also would like to see Sony put more work into the normal human camera, as I call it. The professional camera mode is damn good. But if you just want to whip out your phone and snap a shot of your kids, you want this phone to perform just as well on that end, and it really doesn't. But that's something that could be fixed with an update or two. But if you're a camera pro, this is a great phone for you, which is exactly what Sony wants to hear. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Sony for sending over the Sony Xperia 5 Mark II for me to test out. And I will miss it a little bit when I send it back. I'm sorry to say. I'd like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>